This is No Training Wheels, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Okay, okay, stop the music for a second. I need to talk plainly here. This is the first episode that I've recorded since the May 25th killing of George Floyd by police officers from the Minneapolis Police Department. In the past couple of days, I haven't really known what to say other than I support the Black Lives Matter movement. And frankly, that wasn't enough on May 25th, and that's not enough now. The guest on today's show, Tom Gibbons, and I spoke on May 28th, just three days after George Floyd was killed. And the entire story was still developing at the time, and frankly, we didn't talk about it. But since then, Tom and his team, Automatic Racing, have acted. They've donated $1 per each mile ridden during the period of time from June 6th through June 13th to the NAACP Empowerment Funds in a program that they called Miles for Change. I'm going to join in Automatic Racing's effort. I will donate $1 per each mile that I ride from June 24th through July 8th, the two weeks between when this episode comes out and the next episode airs. But we need to step back even further. No matter how much we ride, how many weights we lift or sprints we do, the strongest and most powerful part of our body is our minds. It's the part that allows us to think, to evaluate, to collect data, make plans, and make a change in the world that we live in. The voice my mind has granted me is my tool. This is my bully pulpit, and I'm going to use it. Before George Floyd was killed, I had read the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. It's a powerful book, and for a white guy in his 40s, it's a hard read. Because it makes you think about some very uncomfortable facts and take a critical look at yourself and your choices. And in hindsight, I'm not proud of some of the things that I had done in my past. While I can't change what I had already done, I can definitely change what I'm doing now and what I will do in the future. What I took from white fragility and from my training as a history major in college, is that without violent revolution, the only way that groups who are oppressed or minorities have gained power and legal rights is when they've been granted those rights by those who are already in power. Look at our own history. Poor white men were given legal rights and enfranchisement by rich, propertied white men who were already in power. Black men were given the right to vote by an all-white male Congress. Women were given property rights and the right to vote and legal participation by all male legislatures. That story goes on and on all the way to the present and the battles for LGBTQIA plus inclusion and equality in our current day society. That, of course, is not to suggest that social progress requires a white male savior. That thinking is wrong and proves insulting to the work of pioneers like Frederick Douglass, W.E.E.B. Du Bois, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Harvey Milk, and countless others who have braved greater risks and hardships than I could ever imagine. Rather, it is to suggest that for genuine social change to take place, 
those that have privilege need to realize that they have it, that the status quo is unjust, that progress needs to be made, and that they should join with those who are seeking it. The first person born in my family in the Western Hemisphere was born in the Maryland colony in 1763. His name was John Maxwell. I have no clue who John's parents were or why they brought him to this new world. All that I do know is that he was born in Kent County, Maryland. And even though he was only 13 years old at the time the revolution started, he enlisted as a drummer boy to serve our country. In 1853, at the age of 90, he sat for a picture, a copy of which sits on my desk today. There's a 257-year unbroken line from John to me. In that time, this country, our shared country, has seen civil and foreign wars, has seen economic depression and expansion, the rise of industry and organized labor, the growth of legal representation, civil rights and liberties, protests, riots, and men walking on the moon. I provide that history not as a lesson, but as a guide for what I'm about to say next. In those 257 years, my family has always been in a position of privilege. We may not have always been rich, but we've always been in a position to dictate our place in the world. And that hasn't always been the case for others, including women and minorities, throughout that same time. I don't know where my ancestors fell on the great issues of their times, but I do know where I will. For too long, our sport has been non-inclusive. It's been white and heavily male-dominated. If you want evidence of it, just listen to what Rasan Bahadi said on this podcast last summer. You know it's bad when you can name all of the African-Americans cyclists over the last hundred years that had an impact on the sport. Major Taylor, Nelson Bills, Rasan Bahadi, Justin Williams. That's it. And that is true across the board. Black, Latino, Asian, Native American, all of these communities are underrepresented in our Criterium Nation. It's up to us to make that change. Just look at the post from USA Crits on their Instagram account on June 17th. Only 6% of the women on their D1 teams and 15% of the men are from underrepresented groups. And USA Crits defines underrepresented to mean non-white. I don't know what the right ratio is, but I can definitely tell you that that is not good enough. Critics may say minority writers aren't out there or they're not applying. It's our job to go out there and find them. A couple black guys racing the Tour de France a few years ago, and now they're not. And it's like, that always rubs me the wrong way. Those guys are not good enough to be like a domestique, but guys who have no results, never won the polka dot jersey, they always find a team to, be, to do something. I took a moment the other day to think of five Cat 1 riders from here in the Mid-Atlantic Bicycle Racing Association in Marlboro who can hang in any USA Crits race. Just in case D1 teams were unable to find somebody, I did the work for them. DJ Brew, Saeed Arana, Jose Escobar, Sonny Gill, Patrick Jerwantner. All of these guys 
are offer only athletes, no audition required. We have to do better. We have to reach out and be inclusive. Where communities and riders don't exist, we need to build them. We need the support of our industry partners and sponsors. We need their financial backing, and we need it now. The start line at Crits in this country needs to be as diverse as our major cities. And that means we need to bring our races and our events to those communities as well. We have to expose a wide variety of people in real life and in media and prove to them that this is no longer an all-white men's club. To do otherwise is a disservice. Yes, this is a microcosm. And yes, there are much more time-sensitive and critical issues that need to be dealt with now. But we can do both. We can do all of this at the same time. We just have to start. History has its eyes on all of us now. And I'm done waiting. I'm done being patient. And I'm done being silent on this issue. Okay, back to Tom Gibbons, Mr. Automatic himself, the 2019 USA Crits Individual Men's Champion. The scene on this story opens in Idaho. Picture it. Blue skies, mountains, birds. We find Tom relaxing on the back porch of the cabin that he's currently staying in after a long, hard training ride. We tell this story in three chapters. The first a tale as old as time. The dream we are told for an American rider is to progress up the chain to become so good in America that you have to leave. You have to go to Europe and race against the best there. And not just anywhere in Europe. You have to go to Belgium. Tom does it. He flies up the American ranks, progresses to a point where he goes over to Europe, he goes to Belgium, and he races there for five years. He gets his opportunity to test his medal against the best in Europe. We'll let Tom pick it up from there. So I'm Tom Gibbons. I race for and sort of direct automatic racing along with my partner Lauren Dodge. Uh, Originally from New Jersey but the past few months we've been living out in Idaho. We heard the quarantines were starting to hit and we just ran for wide open spaces. Yeah that's kind of a question because the last time that you and I were face to face was St. Louis last September and we were talking about Cape May where you were from and how great Cape May, New Jersey is and how, you know, how beautiful it is. And I think you guys had invited my wife and I to spend some time with you guys during the summer. And next thing I find out, you're you're out in Idaho. What's the story there? So I had Gateway, right? That's September. We were living in New Jersey. Plan was to sort of be there indefinitely until we had a reason to leave. Around Christmas time, Lauren got a call from the cycling coach at Scad Savannah seeing if she wanted to join their team. She got a scholarship and she was kind of like, yeah, you know, three masters, screw it, let's do it. So drop of a hat, literally like four days, we found out about this, packed all of our stuff, drove down to Georgia. 
So then beginning of January, we end up in Georgia. She's in Savannah. I'm in Athens. And on the team, she meets Abby Youngworth, who is from Boise. They become friends and blah, blah, blah. And the apocalypse happens. And everybody has to leave. And Abby's like, do you want to come to Boise? And we're like, well, our choices are get locked down in Georgia or go back to New Jersey, which is the friggin' epicenter of the whole thing, basically. She, her parents are right outside of New York. So we're like, yeah, screw it. Let's go to, let's go to Boise. So we're actually crashing at uh, her dad's cabin in Idaho City, which is like, it was at one point the capital of Idaho, but it's like a one street town in the mountains and super quiet, super beautiful. We just put our dog out in the morning and she runs wild all day. She made friends with a coyote. Not kidding. Um, and yeah, it's just super low key, no stress. And I'm really glad we came out here. It's completely different from anywhere I've lived. Yeah. And I actually went and saw, and this all connects to Boise somehow, I promise. I went and I saw John Oliver, the stand up comedian, do a show. And he was doing a show here in Washington, D.C. And, you know, he's talking about different parts of the country and he brings up Boise. And he, and in his very proper British accent, he calls it Boise. And somebody in the third row of the Kennedy Center yells down at him, correcting his pronunciation of Boise with Boise. And it was like so passionate, so rabid about pronouncing it just the right way. Yeah, we've already gotten co- uh, corrected a couple times. Because, yeah, everybody says Boise. Yeah. But there's no Z in Boise. So, <laughs> I mean, if, if people called my hometown, like, Cop My, I'd be like, it's Cape May, you dumbass. <laughs> it's easy. You just read it. Well, I grew up outside of Chicago, and we have Marseilles, Illinois, which is right there, and, and Cairo, Illinois, which is down at the southern tip. So... I'm not going to say that I'm, I should be giving pronunciation advice, but let's talk a little less about the United States and a little bit more about Europe for a second, because you, you lived the dream. At least that's what we all tell ourselves is the dream. You did two plus years of bike racing in Belgium on a UCI team or five years in Belgium. Uh, on a UCI team as a 20-year-old. What was that like? It was five years from everything from unattached to a stage on a pro Conti team, right? Uh, And it was just sort of all over the place. What was that like? It was super cool. It was super hard. People underestimate how hard it is to be away from home for that long, I think. Because you know, a month and a half, two months, it is kind of like vacation and you're sort of just caught up in it. But after a while, you start to really feel how far away you are from where you grew up and everybody you've ever known. And so, I, I mean, the tale is old as time. Foreigners go to Belgium and they crack, right? And I think everybody cracks a little bit. Some people just crack more than others. And I was able to minimize cracking, but I've definitely had some rough days in Belgium. Well, I mean, the fun thing is, is that you would race in Belgium and then you'd come back to the United States and 
you'd come back to the United States and you'd kick the living crap out of me and my teammates at Washington County or Wilmington. And then you'd go back over to Belgium and you'd be in some legit races with legit pro racers. What was that transition like switching back and forth between the two? Uh, it's really frustrating. Two completely different styles of racing. And I think you could say physically racing in the States is easier, but the style is so different that you still kind of struggle with it when you just jump right back into it because the, the people just race differently. It's a lot more conservative and I hesitate to say negative in the States, but it's less full gas all the time. And so you can sort of, if you're not careful, it's pretty easy to do too much. Whereas in Belgium, it's the amateur stuff, especially in the, the lower level pro stuff, it's just full gas all the time. And so you never really have to think like, am I riding too hard? Because it's just like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You just go as long as you can. Were the guys that much better than, than us? Or were they just better at the, what they were doing? No, it's, I, I think it stri strictly comes down to that's their style of racing. They do those races three days a week from early March through September. And they're really good at riding. Take an amateur Kermes, for example. They're good at riding 120 Ks full gas. But like, good luck going and even finding 120 K race in the state. And so that takes a bit of an adjustment for people going over there for the first time. It's just like, we don't really know how to ride that hard for that long, three, four days a week, all year. It's just, so no, they're not better. It's just, they have that style of racing that like you're walking into the lion's den essentially and like it's their home turf and they're going to exploit your weaknesses. What was it that you missed the most about the United States or from the United States when you were out there racing? Uh, friends and family, for sure. I don't know if I missed much about the race scene. I think it just suits me better over there and the frequency of races. I, like, I really loved being over there for the racing, but the whole social aspect was very, very difficult. Did you speak any of the, of the local languages, whether it be Flemish or Belgian or French? Nothing useful. Anybody there under like 40 speaks English basically as well as you and I do. And they're excited to brush up on their English when they meet an English speaker. And so there isn't a whole lot of motivation or necessity to really learn Flemish. That said, I'm pretty goddamn embarrassed. I lived there for five years and can only say dirty things. <laughs> Those are the most important words of all of them. I mean, like, we spent a good period of time in Slovenia recently, and I swear everybody in Slovenia understood or spoke English at a higher level than I did. I, I get it. I, I really do. They need to speak our languages, our language, much more than we need to speak their language because computers and international business and all that is is in English as compared to being in Slovenian. But, you know, when you get down to it in the race... Do you feel that anybody was misunderstanding your intentions when you're like, I'm on the outside here? No, not really. I don't know how much communication of like, oh, let's fuck over the foreigner went, went on in the race. I think everybody 
that's also sort of the benefit of the amateur races there is that everybody's stabbing everybody in the back. It's not like they don't want you to win because you're a foreigner. They don't want you to win because you're not them. They'll as soon dick over their own teammate as they will you. So I don't really feel like not speaking the language hindered me at all. Maybe I would have made better friends, uh, which would have helped the racing a little bit. Was racing there and being in that environment the same as being in the environment in the United States where you go and you race the top-level criteriums or Tour of Utah or whatever top-level races that you would find where you're among men who are trying to get to or already at the professional level, and for them it's like a job more than it is a passion? Uh, Yeah, there's some of that. But I think because the country is small, if you drove an hour any day of the week, you could be at a race all summer. Because it's so small, a lot of people are really good, savvy racers who also don't really take it that seriously. Whereas in the States, if you're going to be one of the better racers, you have to commit to a lot of traveling and a lot of a lot of being away from home. And so there's a certain amount of dedication that comes with that. Like you can't just half-ass it and race yourself into shape. When did you know it was time for you to come home and stay home? Uh, So I came home after 2015 when I was given a contract by the Conti team that I was on. And then it was sort of 11th hour pulled away. So I said, all right, screw it. I'm done. And so I came back 2016 to this for a year or whatever. And then I met my fiance and she's like, Fuck yeah, let's go back to Belgium. That sounds awesome. Like she just wanted to go for fun. So I was like, yeah, whatever. I love it there. So we went back for the 2017 season and I just sort of had a stellar season. And I knew a guy on Wanty. I was friends with him, Frederick Bachart. Got a really good result early in the season that put me on the radar. And then I got, you know, some kind words from friends and blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then I sort of sealed the deal in July with another really good result. And so then I got the stage there, which was just like totally unexpected. Like I didn't go into that season trying to do anything. It just had good legs. I made good moves and it just happened. And I got really cool exposure with Wanty. Got to do the tour of Britain. Uh, And then at the end, I just didn't get a contract. Just wasn't good enough. And I was just sort of like, well, that was a sweet little bonus cherry on top. I think we can call it a day. Got to race with my heroes and, you know, put on pro Conti kit and, sort of travel a little bit that was super sick but didn't work out let's go home who just out of curiosity getting to race with your heroes who among the 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 professional cadre that we now read about in magazines is the guy that we'd most like to sit down and have a beer with Lars Boom for sure oh. I love that guy what about Lars Boom is it that you love oh he's a big dude and he just rides hard and I love that I love I don't know. I could sort of see myself, see a little bit of myself and him in that, like, he's not really a physical freak. He doesn't win a ton. Uh, I mean, he's fucking world champion, right? But like, he's not, he's not a prolific winner. He's just a big dude, rides his guts out. He's super nice. I love guys like that. Quick story real quick about Lars Boehm, because I'm just like biggest fanboy. So at the Tour of Britain, we're riding just like everything's low stress right and there's this left-hander coming up 
And I am just completely fucking oblivious. Everybody in the race knows what's going on except for me. And I see Tony Martin start drilling it up the side with, I guess it was uh, Lado Yumbo at that point. Forget. So I'm just like, oh, cool. Should probably follow this guy, right? So I just sort of follow them up to the front. We make the left-hander. It's a crosswind. And it just gets ripped to shreds. And, like, by pure luck, I just happen to be in the front of this race. And, like, it's just going, going, going. And I was in the front. And I'm just, like, slipping back, 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 back. And I'm, like, pretty much just about to get blown. And then it finally lets up. And there's one guy behind me. And it's Lars Bohm. And he just, like, pedals by me like he's on a fucking Sunday ride, right? And he's like, well, got tough there for a second, huh? Last one. And I just look at him, my goddamn idol, and I go, <laughs> and that was my, my one interaction with Lars Bohm. Before we get back into it with Tom in Chapter 2, let's pause for a moment and get a quick update on another great show here on the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, The Gravelot. Searching for the stories outside of cycling, but still inside cycling? The Gravelot is a weekly interview series where we talk about our shared experiences in the cycling community and talk with people that we think you guys might be interested in. Absolutely. And the Gravelot is actually not always about gravel, but it is the place that is your local trailhead. It could be the meetup parking lot where you meet your friends. Or the post-ride watering hole. It's really the place where you sit down, share your stories, and talk about life. Yeah, and dive into the things that really matter to you on two wheels or beyond. The Gravelot has brand new episodes every single Thursday morning, along with a bi-weekly editorial column every other Tuesday. So check out the show, check out the beeline, and join the conversation and find out all you need to know about The Gravelot at thegravelot.com. And now, Chapter 2, Home Sweet Criterium Home. Finding your groove back in the life you had left years before isn't easy. And figuring out how to relight a fire and keep it burning takes some effort. But for Tom, it's all part of the process. And if it phases him at all, I can't tell. been home now from Europe for three years, basically. So 2017 was the last races that you did over there. And now you're doing the USA crit scene. You're doing the American coast to coast action. Is it as much fun for you to do this here in the United States as it was to do it back in Europe? Or is there any comparison or is this just, I'm Tom Gibbons. This is what I know. I think it's less fun because it's so much higher stress. If you go to some race over there and you have a terrible day, let's say you get a flat on the first lap, right? And you're out of the race. It doesn't matter. There's another race tomorrow. You can ride your bike there. It's 30 minutes away. Who cares? 
But here, packing a bike, just flying across the country, you know, kind of a ton of money on the line. And like, if anything goes wrong, then it was just all for nothing. And not only did you not win money, but you invested a ton of money to get there. And so you just, you're out. So it's really stressful, these races, especially like Lauren and I founded in fun, primarily automatic racing. And so it's like, if we don't make money, then it's on us. We lost money personally. It's just way more stressful. I feel like there's a lot more on the line here. What could we as a community do? Let's say Tom Gibbons is rebuilding bike racing today. What is what what can we as a community do to make it less stressful? More of what they've got in Belgium. I mean, we're a bigger country. We can't fix that part. Yeah. So like I, I really don't know what we can do because our country is just so massive. Short of like dividing it up into much smaller regions where like, you know, I do the Northeast circuit and Justin does the Southern California circuit and Guttenplan does the Southeast circuit. And then there's like sort of a, a big championship at the end of the year. I don't know what could make it easier on us, but like if you do that, if you split it into all of those little regions, then the quality of the field just drops dramatically. You don't have all of the best people at the same race all the time. And then I think the, the quality of race suffers. And then the quality of racers that we are goes down because we're not being pushed, you know? So like, I honestly have short of just like somebody donating a bazillion dollars so that travel and, you know, entries and race winnings aren't an issue. Like, I really don't know what, is going to fix it. Cause yeah, the country's just massive. I think you, you know that more than most you've literally driven coast to coast chasing races. How do you continue to do that year in and year out where some people just, you know, they can't be bothered to drive more than 90 miles from their house to go race a pretty cool downtown crit. Yeah. It helps that I have such an awesome partner. Lauren is, amazing and she's always down for a road trip from the very beginning of our relationship she's just like hell yeah let's go without her i for sure wouldn't be doing it because you know driving 14 hours by yourself is not something that i'm particularly keen to do so she's a huge motivating factor in like keeping going and doing these crazy long hauls but like it is starting to wear right now we're doing it because we like it and we're still passionate about it and we're sort of just like why not like soon as we sort of transition into more sustainable living, we're going to kick ourselves a little bit with like, oh man, wish we could have done that. So we're doing it while we can without a huge injection of cash from Santa Claus. Uh, it's got a very definite shelf life. Uh, but for now, we're happy we're doing it. and uh, It's an adventure. I think so many people have never seen, like you said, you know, 90 miles outside of their own home they live in this little bubble and I was kind of like that for a little bit but like talking to you I'm staring at mountains in Idaho like this is fucking wild never in my life that I think I'd end up in Idaho but it's like totally rad I had this is nothing what I expected and I'm so happy that I'm here and racing brought me here you know I was yeah racing in COVID it kind of brought us all into weird places I was supposed to be out in Boise in July for the crit. I don't know too many people, and this is a shame, who would say, I'm really looking forward to going to Idaho in the middle of the summer. But like, because of bike racing, I was looking go looking forward to going to Idaho. 
And because of bike racing, I was looking forward to going to Littleton and I was looking forward to going to Chicago again. Why is this sport, you know, what is it about this sport that drives us to drive long distances, go crazy places that you would never think that you'd go before and just like really look forward to it too? I don't know. I think we're just sort of competitive assholes. And if you put something on the calendar, doesn't matter if it's bike racing or checkers, if you're competitive and there's a reason to go somewhere and you can kick some ass, like that's fun. Right. I hope so. I hope so because I sure do a hell of a lot of intervals and I spend a lot of time and money and I get my teeth kicked in on a regular basis. So I swear it's fun at some point in time. Let's talk automatic endurance. Let's talk automatic racing. What is what is this team, this company behind it? Who are Tom Gibbons and Lauren Dodge? So automatic endurance is our coaching and nutrition business. Lauren is a registered dietitian. And it was just, we formed this LLC basically because I was coaching people and it was time to make it proper with the IRS. And so it's just like, okay, time to file taxes because making enough money and I shouldn't do that because I'm an adult. Um, and then we decided to just like start a team to basically write off travel, I guess. And it, it sort of started as just like a small thing. And then it's a very tight, very small budget, but we have some good characters on our team and I think we could do some stuff. A lot of the time, though, it is pretty much just you and Lauren. At least that's how it was in the last year. You know, how has that changed this year? Last year, we were gearing up for something a little bit bigger. And then we got the rug pulled out from under us in January. So, yeah, most of the year it was just me and just Lauren, right? Uh, But this year, with some more stability, we've been able to recruit the right type of racers that we want. We still have no goddamn money, um, but we have the right the right group of personalities that sort of mesh together and I think make a really good team. I think if I were to tell you the names, Dalton Collins, Dennis Ramirez, Tom Salveson, Huntley Nash, you'd go, who the fuck are those people? Each one of them was selected for how they interviewed, basically, and what I saw them do in races. And they're all really selfless self-sacrificing people who can also motor and maybe nip away in the race. And I would have confidence in any one of them to go on a small break to the line. I was really excited for this year because it went, it went from literally zero help last year to now I have five guys, let's say due to budgetary restrictions, we can only fly three out there, right? But across the country. So at the minimum, I have three guys who can do the dirty work that I was having to do all by myself last year. Well, I mean, you've got the orange kits now and not just the black Under Armour shirts. So, I mean, like, that's a that's a huge step in a positive direction, right? Yeah, Under Armour wouldn't return our email. Looking at the way that you did this thing last year, and by thing, I mean being the individual champion for USA Crits. That is no small accomplishment. And you need to be congratulated for that because you did it pretty much Han Solo. What was that like winning the National Criterium Series pretty much by yourself with Lauren, of course? Well, yeah, right. Without her, none of it happens. I think without her, I'd make it to like 
four races last year. Sure as hell wasn't going with El Paso. That was a 30-something hour drive. Like, it wasn't a thing, really. Like, I think it was really anticlimactic. Because the first race got a few points, right? And then second race at Athens, I actually took over the points lead. But due to a miscalculation, I didn't get the jersey. They gave it to Summerhill, I think. And so after that, I still wasn't in the lead. So I was just like, oh, I'm doing okay. Uh, and then I was in the lead at Winston-Salem, but Connor Saley was like right behind me and he has a full butcher box team. And then it's sort of like, I don't know, you feel the pressure every race, but then in Salt Lake City, his whole team crashed out. And now I'm sort of like way ahead. And then by San Rafael, it was just sort of over. And so it was like stressful for a few weeks there, but it just sort of happened. It was my goal to win the overall at the beginning of the year, but it was never like, I never felt like I was kicking teeth in and I never felt like, like this is my series or anything like that. I was just sort of like, oh yeah, I'm here. I'm wearing a leader's jersey. Gonna ride hard, finish in the front. It is a complicated scoring system in the sense that, in the sense that it's not like who wins the race wins the whole thing. Because you have points for mid-race sprints, you've got points for laps led, you've got points for starting. You know, so there's a lot that goes into the accomplishment that you you achieved. But when you look at it, did you feel that you had people who were competing against you to win the competition? Like other people who were like, this is my thing, I'm dialed in on beating Tom Gibbons. Uh, the only person I feel like felt like that was Connor Saley. He and I were head to head for a good minute there. Uh, but then, yeah, he crashed out in Salt Lake, didn't get any points, then it was sort of over. Justin was just, he was there for the day. No sight to the overall. And so he would sit in, do nothing. He wouldn't go after point screens or anything like that. And he would win the race and take his 250 and his check and he'd go home. And uh, it got to a certain point very quickly where, like, if I was going for a point scream, people would just let me go for it. Like, oh, it's Tom, he's going to win the series. He can take his 10 points, whatever. Let him burn the match. Yeah, I, I think at a certain point, they just sort of let me walk. Do you feel like that's healthy for the series and healthy for bike racing in the United States to have a series like this that could have so much potential and, and be such a unifying factor to have the competition for individual be down to you and Connor? Well, I don't think it was like by choice, right? Uh, it's not like Connor and I were the only people interested in it. We were just the only ones good enough to be there week after week after week. So I'm sure there were 30 other people who like wanted to be the series leader and maybe they get one result, but then the next race they're 30th and it's like, all right, well, it's over for you. And so who knows, you know, like the, the depth may have been there in their mind, but to me, Connor was the only person I was racing against. If that makes sense. Is that a dick thing to say? <laughs> I I don't I have no idea. Uh I, I I know Connor, he's a really great guy, and I think he considers you to be a great competitor, so I think there's a lot of admiration between the two of you. We'll have to get him on the show and talk. There's definitely some mutual respect there. We started off real bumpy in Birmingham, but cooler heads prevailed and we ended up friends by the end of the season. So but, well let's let's talk about bumpiness. Not necessarily between you and Connor, but like you and that pointy end of the race. 
people know this. Criterium racing is a physical thing. There is there bike racing in general is a physical thing. Elbows and shoulders and you know sometimes helmets go bouncing against each other. You're a bigger dude. Do you ever feel that this sport is as physical as it really is? Nah. Honestly, crit racing has this reputation, racing in general, I think, has this reputation of being like rough and tumble, heavy contact, bumping and blah, 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 blah. But at this level, if you touch somebody, they lose their goddamn mind. It's like, oh, oh, hey, 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 Jimmy, it's like, dude, relax. Like, we brush shoulders. Uh, there's some people who are like really good at it. And, you know, they initiate contact and they need to initiate contact. But for the most part, it's bravado and people like acting like they're going to lean on you. But no. Do you like crits? Yeah. I like aspects of crits. I like location. So a downtown Twilight crit is pretty awesome, aside from the fact that I hate racing in the dark. Uh, but it, it is a spectacle to behold, right? As a, as a person watching the race, it's super cool. For my case, the course is a little too short. You got a big guy like me, and I got a lot of a lot of speed that I don't really know what to do with. But I never get to use it, because by the time I get up to top speed, you're back on the brakes, because there's the next corner. But we're going to tailor a race for me. Instead of a 1K circuit, it would be like a 3K circuit. Some variation in turning. I don't really like the straight rectangle courses, but it is what it is. And I think for our type of racing, it is great because you can just sort of copy paste into any downtown, provided you can get the, the permits and the town support, right? You don't have to close off that much road. It's not like you're closing down a whole city. You're just closing down like a little rectangle. And it's easier for the spectators to watch because you're they're seeing you every 60 seconds, right? It's the 3K circuit. They're seeing you every three minutes and then people maybe don't stick around. I love the crowds. I love the party atmosphere. If we could somehow mesh that with a longer circuit, I think that would suit me better. But, you know, it's not all about me. I think there's a lot of people who would prefer the 1K super tight circuit. Lauren is an accomplished racer herself. She's gotten tremendously fast over the last two or three years to the point where she's hanging with the best women in the country now. For USA Crits, would you be opposed to swapping the men's and the women's race? Oh, hell yeah. I wish they would do that. I hate that during her race, I'm just like a big ball of stress because she's racing and I'm worried about her and her safety, right? And how she's going to do. But then on top of that, I'm also trying to like get ready for my race, pin up my number, do last minute bathroom, warm up, blah, 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 blah. And so I don't really get to enjoy her race as much as I would like. And so I would love it if they would switch it and I could just go race my race, be done with it, drink a beer, watch her and just like stress about the stuff you normally stress about when you watch a loved one race. So that would be super cool. I'd be a million percent on board with that. A lot of these races, so Athens last year, we finished and then nothing was open. Like we couldn't even go party afterwards. It was just like, well, cool. Now you can just go lay in bed with all of your adrenaline pumping sweating your tits off like have fun i don't know I, I wish we would go earlier in the day so that we could enjoy the party
show is brought to you by the folks at Works and their full lineup of battery-powered tools and equipment, including the HydraShot, the best battery-powered power washer out there. Just think of it. It is the perfect tool for criterium racing. It is the perfect tool for people living in cities or urban environments where they don't have access to outdoor spigots. You can drop it in a two-liter bottle, into a bucket. All you need is a water source. Boom, you've got a clean bike, you've got a clean car, you've got a clean motorcycle. It is dialed in so that it puts enough power out without blowing the grease out of your bearings. And for listeners of the program and for the other shows on the Wide Angle Podium, you can get yours using the promo code GEARUP, all one word, all capital letters, for 15% off. So go to yourcleanbike.com, use the promo code GEARUP for 15% off the power shot and everything else that Works has to offer. And now, Chapter 3, Madness. Having committed to being an American bike racer, Tom and I talk about what that means, about the value of finding friends along the way, intuitive eating, and what's it gonna take to get our other friends to join us in the journey. When it comes down to USA crits, because this seems to be the thing that I like to talk about the most. These big events, these big series, you know, substitute Gateway Cup or Intelligentsia for USA Crits. Do you feel that that is something unique to America or is this something that Europeans understand? I have experience in the USA and then Europe, specifically Belgium. Uh, you know, I've never raced in Australia, New Zealand. I don't know what the hell those guys are doing. Never raced in South America. So maybe this answer is completely way off base. But it, to me, it seems like a uniquely American thing. In five years in Belgium, I think I raced two crits. And it was, they were sort of perceived as like, oh, yeah, why not? For fun, eh? It wasn't like a serious thing. So I think like a dedicated crit circuit is uniquely American. Do you think that this is something that we can sell to the average American sports viewer as a means of getting them excited about this sport that we are so passionate about? Yeah, for sure. I think it will take really good camera quality and really good camera shots and a consistent cast. But yeah, absolutely. I think this is, it's like a nice medium between track racing and road racing. Like it's super intense. It's relatively short, but it's not like, it's not so short that it's not worth your time. It's like that perfect 90 minute slot. So like watch it. You can see a whole story unfold in front of you in 90 minutes and then just like close it up and be done. You're not watching TV for six hours and 15 minutes, like a track race or whatever. I mean, obviously Americans can get behind football and baseball that are like four hour long endeavors that drag on well past midnight if you live on the East Coast. Why do we have so much trouble getting that audience for a 90-minute criterium? I don't know. You figure that out, you let me know. You'll let Scott know if you figure that out. Well, (laughs) actually, I want to ask you a question that Scott and I had talked about, uh, you know, is this concept of creating a league. And that's kind of what USA Crits is about, is creating a league among the top teams in the country so that there's a story not told just on one Saturday night in Westchester or one Saturday night in Winston-Salem, 
but throughout the entire summer that people can be like, I'm cheering for the orange team. I'm cheering for the pink team. That's a really simple idea. So that's why this year we went with essentially the exact same jersey design. And next year, we're going to go with essentially the exact same jersey design because it gives cohesion year to year. And like, you know, we show up in Littleton, nobody knows who the heck we are. But if we show up three years in a row wearing the same stuff, people begin to remember the orange team, right? They begin to remember automatic. And I think that's necessary to growing the sport is recognizability. Because if you never recognize who's coming to town, then why, why would you give a shit? You know, the Yankees still wear pinstripes. If you change your look dramatically every year, which is a very uniquely cycling thing, then like you have to be diehard to keep up with it. Every year the world tour starts and it takes me like two months to figure out who the hell is who. And that's annoying. Having the same people with similar looks year to year, I think will go a long way to establishing something that people can latch onto and root for. So how do we get our friends, people like Ryan DeWald, to buy into something like USA Crits? Because Skyline, UCI team, you know, they've got good guys. Why aren't they racing the entire USA Crits circuit? Or why isn't a team like Raleigh doing USA Crits as much as they are trying to go over to Europe? For Raleigh, I get it. They're trying to make the jump into European racing and maybe they have world tour ambitions. And it's like, if that's your ladder, then like you just got to do that. For the smaller UCI teams, the Conti teams, there's not enough quality racing in the States to not go to these races. Tour California is canceled. Tour Utah, is that canceled? That's always on its last legs, right? Colorado Classic went to a women's only event. Quality, professional UCI racing just doesn't really exist in the U.S. There's a couple races. So why these teams wouldn't just like show up at a cohesive series when there is one, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It, it's maddening, maddening that you'll have like, I don't know, one guy from X team. It's like, just on the whole goddamn squad. What else are you doing? How do you stay sane when you're out on the road for all of these races? So when you go from... New Jersey to El Paso to Birmingham to Chicago to St. Louis. And, and like, if you look at your 2019 season, I don't think you were home for more than a week before you were back on the other side of the country. So really good friends, good company. That whole Western block, we drove out. No, we didn't drive out. We flew to Boise, right? And then we rented a car. And we drove to Louisville, which is right outside Boulder, Colorado. And we stayed with a friend all month. And then we would rent a car and we would, we drove to Salt Lake City and then drove back. And again, just living with our friends. And then we flew to San Rafael, flew back. And then there was a race in Littleton. So it was just, I don't know, it's sort of like a mini vacation, I guess. If you surround yourself with the right people. I think if you focus too much on the racing of like, I'm here to race my focus has to be the race, then yeah, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to, you know, you're going to crack. But if you go, oh, screw it, you know, let's go to Boulder for a month. I'm like, not everybody can do that. I get that. But if you have the opportunity to do that, to base somewhere super rad and see something new and be with people you love, and then like, oh yeah, on the side, you know, we're going to pop in, we're going to do this 90-minute crit, pop out, but it's sort of like an afterthought. It goes a long way to preserving your sanity and your motivation for the sport.
it's something you do, you know, something you choose to do in the grander scheme of things you enjoy to do. I got two more questions for you here. The first one's super simple, and it comes to us from a good friend of mine, Michael Bodegheimer. It's and and I'm wearing my I'm wearing my my taco cat shirt in his honor because I, I've been told that there's a taco tattoo that Tom Gibbons has. I know there's a story here. I do not remember it because the first thing out of my mouth is always bullshit. So I'm sure he was asking me something and I told him, oh yeah, I love tacos. I got a taco tattoo on my ass or something. But I honestly don't remember. I, I have a made up taco tattoo somewhere on my body. Pay me 20 bucks. Maybe you can see it. <laughs> the budget for this show is just not big enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the second, the second question is, you know, traveling with Lauren, traveling with your fiance, who's a registered dietitian, is it a healthy experience? Does she keep you away from the Wendy's and McDonald's? Does she make you scones just randomly? I am so glad you asked this. I think eating in sport, endurance sport, is so wildly unhealthy and everybody has a goddamn eating disorder. I had an eating disorder when I met her because everybody told me that you have to be 75 kilos. Well, that's just not possible for me. I got a DEXA when I was in Athens in 2016. I had 80 kilograms of lean mass. Before you put a single gram of fat on me, I was 80 kgs. And people were telling me I needed to lose 5 kgs. It's 11 pounds, right? And it's just not possible. At a certain point, I did it. I starved myself down to 76, I think, and it was just awful, horrendous. And then I met Lauren. She has a much more reasonable approach to nutrition, which is basically, you want something? Eat it. Check in with yourself. Do I still want this? Am I eating because I enjoy it? It's called intuitive eating. Am I eating this because I enjoy it? Am I eating it because I feel guilty? And just like being honest with what you're feeling. And no, she doesn't keep me. Well, she keeps me away from Wendy's because Wendy's sucks. We go to McDonald's like if we want it, you know, and it's just not a big deal. And since I met her, now I'm probably racing at 86 kilos. Right now I'm probably 88 or something, but I'm just so much, God, so much stronger, so much faster than I ever was at 78 or 76. And I, I just want to grab every skinny little 19 year old by the neck who's trying to starve themselves into six watts per kilo and tell them it's not worth it. Like, if you're going to be a Tour de France climber, everybody already knows it. If you don't know it, stop trying to be that. There's a different spot in cycling for you, but you can't starve yourself into it. And there's a line, right? You can't be a total fat ass. But for the most part, just eat how you're feeling. Make sure you eat your vegetables. So no, it's not like she's not the food Nazi. She's not cracking the whip on me. She's given me a much healthier relationship with food, which has allowed me to train harder which has allowed me to be faster and get better results. It's so simple, but nobody buys it. 2021, are we going to see you back out full gas all the time? Every USA crits you can do? Oh, yeah. Without giving too much away, I'm just old Tom. I, I got rid of my power meter. I just ride fucking hard all the time. I eat what I want. I sleep as much as I can. And I've just gotten ridiculously fast to a point where I, I never thought I could be here, you know, two or three years ago, I thought I'd hit a ceiling 
and it's just I'm really excited to get back out there because I can ride really hard for really long now. Well, I'm looking forward to watching that. I'm not necessarily looking forward to being a part of it, but I am looking forward to watching it. So thanks so much for being on the show, Tom. We look forward to seeing you out there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy talking to people on the internet and shooting shit about racing. So much appreciated. Love it. Thanks for joining us on another episode of No Training Wheels. We're a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling content. For more information and links to the other incredible shows on the network, go to wideanglepodium.com. This show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. For more content, follow us on Instagram at No Training Wheels Pod. And your home for the best in American Criterium Racing is NoTrainingWheelsPod.com. Join us here next time for more from our Criterium Nation.